previously on Breakdown. We were dealing with matters that had no precedent. In history, we had no law books to go to. And we couldn't find anything that gave us any guiding uh, light or the served as a beacon, you know, to, to where we'd know what to do. And neither could I go to the history books. It was not only that I didn't have anything uh, from a legal standpoint, I had nothing historically to go to. And some people feel that might have cost Ford the election in 1976. So great was the anger over sort of sparing Nixon a possible trial and conviction. And to this day, I think people, historians, Americans, uh, are divided over that question. But certainly that's the one time when it seemed possible that a foreign president, a recent president, would see justice for crimes he committed in office. And his lawyers actually had the nerve to argue that that's correct, that he would not, could not be arrested, could not be stopped and that he could engage in a murderous rampage and that no one would have the right to stop him. And in the philosophy biz, we call that a reductio ad absurdum of their position. The position is so absurd that anyone can see that a sitting president should not be so above the law that he has the right to, to start shooting people on Fifth Avenue. Welcome back to Season 9 of Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that takes you inside Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. In Episode 7, you're going to hear from Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy, Gabe Sterling. They reflect on what happened during the 2020 presidential election, its aftermath, and the ongoing investigations. And we explain the surprise court ruling about the person the Fulton County District Attorney's Office will no longer be able to investigate. This is Breakdown, the Trump Grand Jury from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. The impetus behind the special purpose grand jury investigation of Donald Trump and his allies is the former president's January 2nd, 2021 phone call with Secretary Raffensperger. That's when the president claimed he had won Georgia by hundreds of thousands of votes, not lost it by 11,779 votes. Trump says he could show that thousands of dead people and felons had voted. He says this about a poll worker at State Farm Arena in Atlanta on the night of the election. Let's face it, Brad. I mean, uh, they did it in slow motion replay magnified, right? She stuffed the ballot boxes. They were stuffed like nobody's ever seen them stuffed before. Uh, the, she stuffed the machine. She stuffed the ballot. Each each ballot went three times. They were showing. Here's ballot number one. Here it is a second time, third time. Next ballot. But Raffensperger stands up to Trump. I've listened to 
what you know, the president has just said. President Trump, uh, we've had several lawsuits, and we've had to respond in court to the lawsuits and the contentions. Uh, we don't agree that you have one. Trump at one point pleads with Raffensperger to find him the votes he needs to overturn the election. Later, in frustration, he insults Raffensperger and then threatens him and the Secretary of State's general counsel, Ryan Germany. And you're going to find that they are, which is totally illegal. It's, it's, it's more illegal for you than it is for them, because you know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer. That's a big risk. Raffensperger didn't buckle, not one bit. He held firm. And the actions taken by him and his deputy, Gabe Sterling, in the weeks following the 2020 presidential election made them national heroes for democracy in the eyes of many. So we were happy when both men agreed to sit down for an interview for this episode of Breakdown. In May, Raffensperger trounced Trump-backed Jody Heiss in the Republican primary race for Secretary of State. It wasn't long ago when many Republicans wondered if Raffensperger would even win the GOP primary, or at the very least, be forced into a runoff. But Raffensperger picked up 52% of the vote and beat Heiss by almost 20 points. And so I look at uh, my primary race, uh, you know, I got 52% of the vote. What I look at, uh, I think I should, there's 20, out of that, there's now still 48% you know, that weren't convinced about everything. So I still need to go out and talk to some more people. And I may not get all those folks to support me, but my job is to go out there and just, you know, like Johnny Apple's seed, I go out and I share the truth. And so that's what I'm doing is planting seeds of truth. Here's exactly what happened. And then I take their questions. And, you know, I don't duck from any of their questions. I've gone to the Tea Party meetings, gone to Republican Party meetings. You know, I'll talk to anyone that has questions. Because I think people want to make sure that they can sort it out in their own mind. And the best thing to do is, you know, you know like I said, is uh, come out to a rodeo or Kiwana meetings when I'm in your t- uh, town. Uh, come out to a, a business uh, chamber meeting. Uh, I'll go to any political party meetings. Uh, I'll look for opportunities to speak to people, just like I am today. Raffensperger grew up in Pennsylvania, but moved to Ontario, Canada after the fourth grade when his dad relocated for work. Raffensperger met his wife, Tricia, in their 11th grade homeroom class, and they've been married for 46 years. They've had three sons. The Raffensburgers have also suffered a parent's worst nightmare. Their oldest son, Brenton, battled cancer and drug addiction for years. He also was arrested several times. In his book, Integrity Counts, Raffensperger notes that a judge on the outskirts of Atlanta, when sentencing Brenton, ordered him to buy a casket and put it in his home as a reminder of the deadly consequences of his decisions. I must say, I find it hard to believe a judge would actually do something like that. Brenton died of an overdose of fentanyl four years ago. Raffensperger has said his and Tricia's Christian faith gave them strength and peace. Raffensperger also says he and his wife had a motto in the tumultuous time following the 2020 election. They'd say to themselves, I've been through worse. Raffensperger is a civil engineer and built a successful business after moving to Georgia more than 30 years ago. It designs, supplies, and installs post-tensioned steel. And his son Kyle is now president of the firm. Raffensperger served two years on the Johns Creek City Council and four years in the legislature before running for Secretary of State in 2018. 
he had to win both the GOP primary and general election in runoffs. In 2016, Raffensperger endorsed Trump for president before he was the frontrunner. In turn, Trump endorsed Raffensperger two years later. Trump's tweet, Brad Raffensperger will be a fantastic Secretary of State for Georgia. That all changed in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election. But I understand the Secretary of State, who is really, uh, he's an enemy of the people. The Secretary of State, and whether he's Republican or not. We asked Raffensperger how he kept his cool in the face of such attacks, attacks that led to threats against him and his wife. Well, as I discussed in my book, I think our way forward is really very simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it gets back to really civil discourse, honesty, character, and a touch of kindness. Even Ray, Ronald Reagan, you know, who I, my beloved Ronald Reagan, uh, but he talked about kindness. So well, you can be conservative and be kind, but I think people are looking for honesty, and I think they're looking for civil discourse. And then we have these honest discussions. But also, you have to also, I believe, respect the positional authority that anyone holds at any level uh, in elected office. In other words, first of all, people that hold elected office, I believe, should, you know, comport themselves, you know, in the manner that you would expect of someone that holds that office, be it at city council where I started, state house, uh, secretary of state, or any other office in the land, but also that we respect the office that people hold. And I wanted to make sure whenever I have conversations with people that I'm doing respectfully. But there are still many who believe the election was stolen. Polls conducted in February and July 2021 found that some two-thirds of Republican respondents believe that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. And an AJC survey conducted in January found that three-quarters of Georgia Republicans believe there was widespread fraud in the 2020 elections. And so we, uh, I go out and talk to people, and I also talk to people about the election of 2020, the fall election. Because there's still a lot of misinformation, disinformation, I just share the facts and I take questions. I think the best thing is if there's something that's still gnawing in someone's mind, ask your question so I can answer it. It's interesting that a few months ago, people were still asking about State Farm. Uh, that's where that allegation that the ballots were being stuffed. Well, we've now, you know, have had many opportunities and, and a lot of information out there that, first of all, we looked at it, the FBI looked at it, and the GBI looked at it. And if you don't trust any of those three sources, President Trump handpicked someone to look at that himself. And that was Bobby Christine, who came up from Savannah as the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District, became acting U.S. Attorney of the Northern District. He looked at that specifically, and he dismissed it. But obviously, when it gets out there on the evening cable news networks, then it doesn't ever really get taken back off. They just move on to something else. Before the interview, Raffensperger made it clear that he no longer wanted to talk about his phone call with Trump. He says it speaks for itself. Raffensperger gave his thoughts about what transpired during that call in his book, Integrity Counts. And we went into great detail about that in episode one. Raffensperger was the first person to testify before the special purpose grand jury. It was interesting. Uh, I won't share much because it is uh, behind closed doors. But it's not just the prosecutors that ask questions and people, uh, you, know, uh, you know, your citizens that are part of the grand jury pool can ask questions too. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's giving people information. So uh, that's my first time doing that. And, you know, hopefully that'll be my last time. 
but you never know. I don't think we'll have another election like we did in 2020. But uh, obviously, from day one, what we said is we would you know, comply with any you know lawful subpoenas, and we show up when we're subpoenaed. Of course, the grand jury wanted to know about the Trump phone call. I would think that was uh, that was a, a major focus of of uh, what was there. Uh, some people asked some questions about other matters, but uh, it was really focused in on you know the phone call. But uh, as I've said to everyone, uh, it's out there in the public space. You can Google that phone call and you can listen to it, and everyone can draw their own conclusions: what was said and what was not said. And my book explains all of that, but. Uh, sometimes people want to just hear you, you know, ask questions, you know, directly. So that was the purpose of that, I, I assume. Gabe Sterling has been involved in Republican politics since he began volunteering as a teenager. In 1998, he ran for a seat in the state house, but lost in the GOP primary. In 2011, he won a seat on the Sandy Springs City Council. In 2017, he ran for a seat on the Fulton County Commission, but he lost. After Election Day in 2020, Sterling became the face of the Secretary of State's office, despite his decidedly bureaucratic title of Voting System Implementation Manager. He held many news conferences, doing all he could to make the election results as transparent as possible. And of course, he did have one moment that resonated nationwide. That's when the vitriolic attacks led to people being threatened, including Raffensperger and his wife. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. Appearing before the House Select Committee on June 21st, Sterling explains why he lost his cool. He says a news conference had already been scheduled for that afternoon, and shortly after lunch, he received a phone call from the project manager at Dominion Voting Systems. She was audibly shaken. She's not the kind of person I would assume would be that way. She has a master's from MIT, a graduate of the Naval Academy, and was very much on the ball and pretty unflappable. And she informed me about a, a young contractor they had who had been receiving threats um, from a, a video had been posted by some QAnon supporters. Sterling says this was just one more thing they were having to deal with. But he says he pulled up his Twitter feed and found the young man's name. He said, had his name, you committed treason, May God have mercy on your soul with a slowly twisting gif of a noose. And for lack of a better word, I lost it. I just got irate. Sterling says he told his boss he thought he needed to say something at the news conference. So she tells Raffensperger, who gives his okay. That's what prompted me to do what I did. I lost my temper, but it seemed necessary at the time because it was just getting worse. And I, don't, I could not tell you why that particular one was the one that put me over the edge, but it did. Representative Adam Schiff of California has this question. After you made this plea to the president, did Donald Trump urge his supporters to avoid the use of violence? Not to my knowledge. Sterling also appeared before the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury. It wasn't surreal so much, as you pointed out earlier. 
We've been saying the same darn thing over and over again for 20 months. I mean, and it's really easy to do when you're telling the truth. You don't have to remember too much. It's just, it's just there. Um, kind of like the secretary, I was intrigued at the level of um, uh, engagement from the uh, grand jurors when I was there. There were 17 grand jurors when I was there, and I think 10 of them asked questions. Um, so it was, it was, it was a very engaged. They were very... And you can tell they've been working with these lawyers for a while because they were cutting up and doing stuff. And they kind of knew each other. I was there for what my normal role had been, which is basically, this is the reality of these things. And, and the secretary was kinder when he referred to these um, uh, rumors that we've been dispelling. They're lies. They're lies. They're half-truths. They're disinformation, which is done for bad reasons. They're misinformation done for political reasons. And it's, again, from the, the left and the right, I think what surprised us most about 2020 was we had been gearing up for the left to claim so election again. All of a sudden, we got whiplash when, when the president lost by, you know, 11,779 votes. But I remember that number for any specific reason. So testifying was, it was, I was in there for like three hours. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, we went over videotapes and I showed things. They asked about you know, State Farm, just all the normal things. And I, I, my job was kind of dispel and explain what was going on. Interestingly, there was a couple of people there who still had questions about the stolen election. And they said, well, what about this? What about this? And I answered them and they, they seemed to accept that. But they got, I think, to the secretary's point, the grand jurors and the DA wanted firsthand accounts, not just stuff they read in the paper. And I think they need to have that for their record. And the secretary said, we will respond to lawful subpoenas just as we did for January 6th. Um, I don't know what the outcome of all these things will be. Sterling then makes this observation. And it's, it's just, you know, this is when the secretary ran for the job. Secretary said it's a pretty boring job, you know. I was a voting system implementation manager. Most bureaucratic title we could come up with. And no one should have ever, you know, we. What I find interesting about all this, especially for the secretary, People looked at him as a hero for simply doing his job and telling the truth. And if that is such an out-of-the-world thing to see, <laughs> what does that say about everything else that's going on? When a man who stands there in his faith, follows the law, follows the Constitution, and then all of a sudden he's a hero, that's great. And I'm glad that he's being recognized and we're being recognized for doing the right thing. But it's like if somebody asked me, when did you all decide to do the right thing? And I've said so many times, we didn't have a meeting. You just do it. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter. In past interviews, Raffensperger criticized District Attorney Fonnie Willis, suggesting she was slow walking the investigation to make an impression on this year's elections. But the secretary was more circumspect when we asked him about that. Remember, he has a general election in his sights. He's facing off against Democratic State Rep B. Wynn, who also testified before the special grand jury. Well, it's a lawful process, and we'll just wait and see where it all goes. We've handed everything over that uh, we've been requested, and so I think that part of the phase is done. 
Um, I really think what they're looking at now has nothing to do with our office, has to do with other people. Uh, and so that's really what their focus is. Of course, the secretary is referring to the slate of fake electors and the subpoenas to members of Trump's inner circle. Raffensperger was also questioned about the two phone calls that Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina placed to his office. In a prior interview on CNN, Raffensperger said this is what Graham wanted to know. Well, he asked if the ballots could be matched back to the voters, and then he, I, I got the sense it implied that uh, then you could throw those out. Uh, for any really would look at the counties with the highest um, fr- frequent error of uh, signatures. So that's that's the impression that I got. Well, it's just an implication that uh, uh, look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. Graham denies that, saying he did not ask Raffensperger to do anything inappropriate. So since the phone call with Trump was recorded, we naturally asked whether the phone calls with Graham were recorded. No, you're like the eighth person, to, 80th person to ask. So no. We hate to be the 80th. Shoot even the eighth person to ask such a question. But I guess it's safe to say you stand by what you've you've said about that phone call with Senator Graham? Yes. We asked Sterling about how his office decided to push back against the misinformation that came flooding in after the 2020 presidential election. We never changed our approach from day one. I mean, I remember kind of what happened. We were at our election war room and... Like I said, I could, so we did a victory lap election night because election day was great. I came back into the office that Wednesday afternoon, and I knew it was going to be close. And I, I did the math. I've been doing it for 30 years. I said, the president, and I called everybody in about 3 o'clock on Wednesday. I said, the president's going to lose by about 10,000 votes. Oh, it's off by 1,779. But our, our plan from the beginning was just stick to the facts over and over. And what we got to remember is... They, I knew the president was going to lose, and most of the knowledgeable people in both campaigns knew what the outcome was going to be, but they were too terrified because it was so close to start attacking the system one way or the other. So Biden's team and Trump's team basically didn't say much for the first three or four days. It wasn't until probably Saturday that they figured out that they had lost for sure. Sterling then recalls when Georgia's two Republican senators, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, called on Raffensperger to resign, even though they had no evidence he had done anything wrong. And then on the 9th of November was when the sort of the dam broke and a friend of mine from the Leffler campaign texted me the statement that this two senator was going to call for the secretary to resign. And I literally texted back to them. I said, ha ha, funny. And they're like, no, this is getting out in five minutes. And then we kind of kind of get into a very fast response mode at that point. But that was also the same when the death threat started. That was when Trisha, Brad's wife, started getting sexualized death threats on her phone. And that really kicked off all the craziness. But we weren't going to allow any of those things to kind of pull us off of our goal of being highly informative. Raffensperger had this to say about his response to what Purdue and Leffler did. Remember, until they called for his resignation, they were viewed as political allies. Well, as they say, pressure reveals uh, character. And so that's really what got revealed after the post-election. And so I leaned into, you know, in, leaned into the law, and I wanted to make sure that every allegation was checked out. 
so that I could come back to the people of Georgia and say, these are the results. And that's why I've traveled all over the state, and that's why actually today I'm going to another Rotary meeting and in a bipartisan uh, way. Despite all of that, Sterling says he still voted for Senators Perdue and Leffler in their failed runoff elections. Because at the end of the day, I'm a Republican. I was a Republican before Trump was a Republican. I'll be a Republican after Trump is gone. <laughs> so this is my party, and I'm going to keep on fighting for it. We asked him how it feels to hear Trump continuing to make his claims the election was stolen. On some level, I think if you hooked him up to a lie detector test, he'd pass. I think he has so convinced himself that this is true. There's no way he could have lost. It's just not possible because at the end of the day, he's a human being. Now, he is an outsized caricature of a human being on top of that. So his, his, his flaws are more magnified and his, and his better attributes are more amplified. He had, you know, 15 years on reality television to hone all these skills, to outsize everything. And he continues to do damage. I mean, this ought to be a great year for Republicans if he would just shut the hell up because it can't be about him. It needs to be about real things like, oh, I don't know, inflation, gas prices, Ukraine, you know, uh, the labor shortage, um, gas shortage, all these real issues that are affecting people day to day. But every time he keeps on talking about stuff, it, it, it takes the focus away from the failures of, of some of these institutions and, and, and what the difficulties people are facing. So it's more frustrating than anything. I get it. Everybody hates losing. I don't like losing. At the House Select Committee hearing, snippets of Trump's phone call are played. Raffensperger sits and listens, and then he's asked to respond to what Trump has said. The other thing, uh, dead people. So dead people voted. And I think uh, the, the number is in the pro- uh, close to 5,000 people. And they went to uh, obituaries. They went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number. And a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. Uh, no, it's not accurate. And actually, in their lawsuits, they allege 10,315 dead people. Uh, we found two dead people when I wrote my letter to Congress that stated January 6th. And subsequent to that, we found two more. That's one, two, three, four people, not 4,000, but just a total of four not 10,000, not 5,000. Raffensperger is also asked why he didn't just quit and walk away. Because I knew that we had followed the law and we had followed the Constitution. And I think sometimes moments require you to stand up and, and just take the shots when you're doing your job. And that's all we did. You know, we just followed the law and we followed the Constitution. And at the end of the day, President Trump came up short. But I had to be faithful to the Constitution. And that's what I swore I know to do. We asked Raffensperger about his experience testifying before Congress on national television. It's uh, very imposing. Obviously, uh, the room was just crammed with probably all reporters. Uh, I would assume all those people sitting in those seats back there. There must have been 100 photographers, as Gabe mentioned. And then the questions uh, that came. But my biggest takeaway take about all that is that uh, many people have said, you know, you know, Brad, thank you. You know, you saved democracy and, and almost made it sound like it was just what we did here in Georgia. But what came, I came away from that is here's a, a, the majority leader of the state house of Arizona, Rusty Bowers, you know, was sitting next to us and uh, he stood firm. In other words, it was not just one person, but a lot of people that stood firm on the law and on the Constitution.
And I think that's the biggest takeaway that everyone should really grasp hold of and embrace is that our nation is strong because there's many people that believe in our Constitution. They believe in the rule of law. And that's the strength in our country. So, yes, you know, there will be some, uh, there will be these events that happen from time to time. But as I said when I won my primary, most people are good. Never doubt that most Americans are good people. And so, confronted and provided with the facts, people will lean in and accept the facts. And so, that should give everyone great hope. And I think that you saw that in many people that. Uh, held positions of authority, uh, positions of influence, stood firm, you know, on the law, on the rule of law, and that's a good thing for America, and should give us all great hope and uh, great comfort. Like we said earlier, we had big news last week, a court ruling that very likely embarrassed District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who's overseeing the special grand jury, disqualified Willis and her office from investigating State Senator Burt Jones. He's the GOP nominee for Lieutenant Governor and one of the 16 alternative Republican electors who met at the state capitol in December 2020 to cast electoral college votes for Trump. In court filings, the Fulton DA's office says Jones and the other 15 alternative electors are targets of the special purpose grand jury investigation. That means it could recommend that they should be indicted. As soon as Jones' name became public, his lawyers filed a motion to disqualify Willis. That's because she hosted a June 14th fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, who at the time was in a Democratic primary runoff duking it out for the right to take on Jones in November. On June 22nd, McBurney presides over a hearing and expresses alarm at the optics of the fundraiser. A social media post that promoted the event includes Willis's formal title. McBurney suggests that is a conflict of interest and says this with Willis sitting just 15 feet away. It's a what are you thinking moment. Um, if the optics are horrific. If you are trying to have the public believe that this is a nonpartisan, driven by the facts, but if we are trying to maintain confidence that this investigation is pursuing facts in a nonpartisan sense, that's problematic. In his order, McBurney writes that Willis's attorney correctly points out that the fundraiser was for Bailey's successful runoff race against Kwanzaa Hall. But he also makes this observation, quote, But more relevant and harmful to the integrity of the grand jury investigation is that the die was already cast on the other side of the political divide. Whoever won the Bailey Hall runoff would face Senator Jones. When we asked a handful of unaffiliated lawyers about this ahead of the hearing, all said the conflict was more theoretical and predicted that McBurney would rule in the Fulton DA's favor. That's what made McBurney's final decision so surprising. He writes, quote, An investigation of this significance, garnering the public attention it necessarily does and touching so many political nerves in our society, cannot be burdened by legitimate doubts about the district attorney's motives. The district attorney does not have to be apolitical, but her investigations do. The Bailey fundraiser she sponsored in her official capacity makes that impossible when it comes to investigating Bailey's direct political opponent. 
any decision the district attorney makes about Senator Jones in connection with the grand jury investigation is necessarily infected by it. McBurney's order bars Willis and the entire Fulton DA's office from considering Jones a target, from subpoenaing him, or ultimately deciding whether he should be charged with a crime. That responsibility will now fall to another district attorney's office. Fulton prosecutors can still gather evidence about Jones's conduct from other witnesses, but they can't, McBurney writes, quote, make use of any such evidence to develop a case against the senator. Ouch. You said it. It's now up to the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia to appoint another DA's office to step in. The group's executive director, Pete Scandalakis, issues a statement soon after McBurney's decision. Scandalakis says he hasn't made any decisions yet about whether an appointment will be made, and he indicates he isn't in a hurry to decide, especially because the special purpose grand jury cannot issue indictments. He says, quote, Pending further analysis, it may be premature to appoint a criminal prosecutor at this time. He added, It may be best to allow the grand jury to conclude this portion of the investigation before appointing another prosecutor to come in. Finding another DA who'd be willing to pick up this hot potato of a case might be difficult. Um, well, if you're a DA, you, you, you kind of want to volunteer, right? That's Atlanta criminal defense lawyer Andrew Fleischman. Like, you want someone who wants to take the case. And who, outside of maybe Sherry Boston of DeKalb County, would want to be prominently taking on a major Republican figure uh, in, a, in a red wave election cycle? So you have to find somebody who wants to do it and will do a good job doing it. And it's not clear to me how many people would be jumping up and down to take this. Well, maybe the case is weak. They want to risk losing it. Or they just don't want to spend the resources to have somebody coming up to Atlanta all the time on the case. Lots of reasons someone might not want it, and that could delay who gets it. Fleischman also says this. It would be hard to overstate what a big witness is for Mr. Jones. His Democratic opponent, Charlie Bailey, has long hammered him on the campaign trail for subverting democracy by serving as a Trump elector in a state Joe Biden won. Now he has a respected Fulton County judge singling out the prosecutor who'd been pursuing Jones for allegedly crossing a line. It's worth noting that in the same order in which he disqualifies Willis from investigating Jones, McBurney denies a similar request from 11 of the other 16 electors. He says Willis has no conflict there. Here's Georgia State University law professor Anthony Michael Kreiss giving his take on McBurney's ruling. And I suspect that part of this is, you know, if this was any other case, I don't know if it would come out the same way. But I think what the judge is doing is, you know, he's protective of the grand jury, um, right? And so I think he's trying to be more cautious than what might, you know, or, you know, be more prudent and more cautious than what, uh, you know, a regular case that's not this highly politically charged and that's not quite as salient and that doesn't have such major implications for Georgia politics and national politics, um, you know, I think that he's going to do everything he can to keep the taint, you know, or any potential taint out. Remember, Judge McBurney was appointed back in January to oversee the special purpose grand jury. He selected the jurors, he's adjudicating conflicts as they arise, and he will accept the jury's final recommendations. Undoubtedly, his order is a real rebuke of the Fulton DA and represents a true misstep for Fonnie Willis. But Professor Kreiss thinks Judge McBurney's ruling 
could ultimately be helpful to Willis's investigation when everything's said and done. In terms of their like information collecting, you know, there's a small hit, but um, but I think, like I said, I think the big thing is that the judges really given that that warning shot to the, the DA's office that they really need to be exceedingly careful going forward. Sure. So he's doing him a favor, really. You know, like I mean, yes, he dealt him a loss in one sense, but in another sense, he's he's trying to do, you know, he's trying to do them a big favor in the long run. I think. We have a few other recent developments to report. The special grand jury last week heard videotaped testimony from Governor Brian Kemp. You'll remember that Kemp heard repeatedly from President Trump in late 2020 and early 2021. Trump wanted Georgia's governor to call for a special session of the legislature to overturn Joe Biden's win. Jurors also began hearing testimony from the fake Republican electors. They were required to come in after McBurney shot down a request to quash their subpoenas. That said, we're not expecting those electors to say very much beyond citing the Fifth Amendment. They don't want to incriminate themselves after being named targets of the investigation. Here's one of their lawyers, Holly Pearson, at the recent hearing before McBurney. In my client's situation, I genuinely cannot think of a single topic or question that they could be asked that would not be either under the Fifth Amendment or a link in the chain. Anything they could be asked, what's your name? That's incriminating. What's your job? That could lead to other political links in the chain. That could lead to emails that where they talked about various issues. It could lead to anything. I don't see any topic that could actually be relevant to the grand jury's inquiry upon which my clients could not invoke their federal, their state constitutional rights, and their statutory rights. 11 people should not be essentially frog-marched in front of the cameras in the grand jury to be forced to invoke their rights. Last week also brought a hearing in Atlanta federal court where Georgia Congressman Jody Heiss sought to kill his subpoena. Judge Lee Martin May of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia denied Heiss's request. But she acknowledged that the Republican may soon be back in federal court if he objects to specific questions asked by prosecutors or jurors that deal with his role as a U.S. House member. Remember, Heiss is protected from some questions by the Constitution's speech or debate clause. Interestingly, Judge May says, she'd even be willing to stand outside the grand jury room where Heiss is being questioned and confer with the Republican every time there's an issue. She did say, however, that would be an inconvenient last resort. The speech or debate clause is the same one being cited by South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham as he seeks to avoid testifying. We'll be following those challenges closely. Next on Breakdown. We'll be taking a little time off to watch this investigation progress. But we'll be back as major developments arise. You can be certain of that. As always, thanks so very much for listening. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Please be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown, the Trump Grand Jury from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.